Acts chapter 18. This follows on from Paul uh, and his ministry in Athens. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he took out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. As Catherine, let's pray together and ask God to help us too. To understand that passage. Well, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to do just that. Um, thank you. It seems very straightforward on one hand. And we believe, Lord, there is great truth here and great things for us to understand. So we pray you'd speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that this might make a difference to our lives as we put these words of yours into practice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I wonder if somewhere around about your house, you've got one of these cards, one of our wildly important goals cards for 2018. And uh, one of our wildly important goals for 2018 is the middle one, a people eager to tell the gospel, a people eager to tell the gospel. And so for uh, um, three, well, we've had three month blocks in our evening service or morning and evening services through 2018. We've had three months preaching about evangelism, three months on belonging, evangelism, belonging. And this is the final uh, sermon, first Sunday of the month in 2018, where we're talking about one of those passages. And uh, so we're talking about evangelism tonight, hence um, Acts chapter 18 and verses 1 to 11. And uh, this may be the last in this series of sermons. doesn't mean to say we're going to stop doing evangelism. I hope it's uh, really just wound us up and helped us to uh, have the impetus to keep on going. And I hope you realize that evangelism is just as important and just as urgent as it ever was. The fact is, Jesus wants to use us. He wants to use you and me, not just uh, uh, guys who get paid for it, uh, but you too, ordinary extraordinary Christian people to help others to hear, to learn, to understand and to respond 
to the Christian message. As a guy called Leighton Ford, he once said this, Jesus was born in a borrowed manger. He preached from a borrowed boat. He entered Jerusalem on a, guess what, a borrowed donkey. He ate the last supper in a borrowed upper room, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And now he asks to borrow you, to borrow the lives of Christians, to reach the rest of the world. If we do not speak, then he is dumb and silent. So you see, Jesus wants to borrow us, to borrow you and to borrow me, to help tell others about him. And we're going to see here in Acts chapter 18 and verses 1 to 11, what happened when the Apostle Paul turned up at Corinth. And and I've headed it, uh, Effective Evangelism. And I've picked out three things about evangelism which are emphasized in this passage. So we're going to see about uh, effective evangelism, how that is. It's about, partly, it's about a people who encourage us. Second thing, effective evangelism, is about dogged persistence, keeping on going, don't getting put off. We're going to keep on going. Nothing's going to put me off this. And then third, we're going to see it's about the power of the gospel. Now, of course, effective evangelism is about far more than just those three things. It's a, well, but this is what we, the focus is here. This is what we're learning about in this particular passage, okay? And there are other things as well in this passage, but I want to focus on those three things. Uh, Effective evangelism, we're going to be more effective if there are people who encourage us. We're going to be more effective if we're doggedly persistent. And we're going to be more effective when we understand and respond to the power of the gospel. So first of all, let's look at this, uh, the first one of these. Effective evangelism uh, is about, and the first thing there is there. People who encourage us. People who encourage us. Now, when we get to Acts chapter 18, Paul is um, coming towards the end of uh, a five-city... Well, these days we'd call it a tour. People used to call these things missionary journeys. And uh, that's what Paul's been on. He's been in Philippi in chapter 16. He's been in Thessalonica. He's maybe been there on holiday. He's been in Berea, less likely to go there on holiday. Uh, and he's been to Athens, maybe been there on holiday in chapter 17. And frankly, he's had a pretty rough time in Athens, okay? Um, now, while some believe, if you just glance back to uh, chapter 17, the last verse there, verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, that's the ruling guys. Also, a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So some people believed, but there was also there was a lot of sneering going on. And he probably arrives in Corinth, you know, just a little bit discouraged with what's happened in Athens. But he's arrived, if he wants to be encouraged, he's arrived in a pretty tough place, frankly. Because uh, Corinth was a tough place uh, to preach the gospel. For a kickoff, it was a really big city. It was a, probably about the same size as Brighton and Hove. And in those days, if you, have a, if you had a city as big as Brighton and Hove, that was whopping. That was seriously big. And it was a place that was, was kind of between uh, two harbours. It was prosperous. It was proud. And it was immoral. Uh, Julius Caesar had actually rebuilt Corinth in about 46 BC. Uh, they, ho- they hosted the world-famous Isthmian Games. They were a trade and a business center for the Mediterranean. They were a financial center. And then, perched on a hill about 2,000 foot above Corinth, that's quite pretty high, 2,000 feet, isn't it? Um, uh, there was a plateau called the, uh, uh, the Acro-Corinth. And there, you'd find the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, 
or Venus, the goddess of love. Now, Aphrodite, Venus, she was served by a thousand sex slaves who in the evening would roam the red light districts of Corinth as prostitutes. And Paul turns up with the gospel. Now, in every place he's been, there's been some fruits and there's been opposition. And when you're being opposed, when uh, at times your life is in danger, then it really helps to have some friends, doesn't it? So, for instance, uh, a couple of weeks back, uh, I imagine you would have uh, heard the news about Matthew Hedges there, just the week before last. He's 31, was doing a PhD on uh, uh, stuff in the, uh, on the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and uh, he was uh, jailed for life for allegedly spying. Well, he'd been researching his PhD. His wife said that he's terrified. And what a prospect, facing the rest of your life in a jail in the Middle East. But he got some people fighting for him, like the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. And then after a few days, they announced that he was guilty, but they were going to pardon him. And he's now a free man. It really helps to have people on your side. It really helps to have people who have your back when you're in serious trouble, as he was there. Now, as Christians, we may not end up in that kind of, with that kind of prospect. I'm not saying he was in prison there because he was a Christian. But we may not end up with that kind of prospect of facing the rest of our lives in, uh, in, in prison and so on. But we still need people to encourage us. We still need people to spur us on. And uh, we still need people to tell us we're doing all right. Now, who are the people who God used uh, to help and encourage Paul? Well, um, there were three. Well, actually, there were more than three. There were three groups, okay? So the first one was this. There were a couple, I don't know if you can read that, but Aquila and Priscilla. You look in verse 2. Now, Aquila, I don't know about you, but Aquila sounds like a girl to me. But, uh, but Aquila was not a girl. Aquila was a bloke, all right? And, uh, and he was married to Priscilla. Now, it's most likely, we can't be sure, that Aquila came somewhere up there near the Black Sea, and he was probably a slave. And it's quite likely, we don't know for sure, but it's quite likely that Priscilla came from a bit of a posh household, and it could well be that Aquila was a slave in Priscilla's household, and she fell in love with him, and they got married, and the family didn't like it. Link that up with the fact that actually... Um, uh, in uh, AD 49, the Emperor Claudius, see it refers to Claudius there in verse 2? Well, that's the Emperor. Now, Claudius chucked loads of Jews out of Rome then, and, and it, we think he chucked all the Jews out of Rome because the Jews were rioting because they didn't like the Christians, so they got chucked out of Rome. So it could well be you've got this couple who have married and her parents didn't like it, so they're kind of uh, being pushed out from home. Then they get pushed, uh, then they get pushed out from Rome, because there's a Jewish family, and here they are, come to Corinth, and they're having none of the privileges that Priscilla used to have. And here they are, uh, working as a couple, but they've become Christians now, and they're having to make tents for a living. We think it may be like that. We're not absolutely sure. We certainly know they were there as Christians and they were making tents. We think the reasons for that is what I've just outlined. And here they are in Corinth. And then this guy Paul turns up. 
And he's got no financial support. And so what he does, he teams up with them. In fact, he moves into their flats. And he's there with them. He's sharing his life and he's working in the business with them making tents. Because he's got no financial support. But what an encouragement. You turn up, you're on your own, you're in a pretty, pretty dodgy city, a great big city, with all these, you know, a thousand prostitutes strolling the streets at night looking for work. And he strolls up there and he meets this Christian couple who are also tent makers like he is. That's good news, isn't it? That's encouraging. That's a real help. Now, look, when you need your mates as a Christian, all right? So, for instance, when you go to uni, find the other Christians. There'll be a Christian union at your uni or your college. Find them. If you start work at a new place, find the other Christians. If they're there, if there's a Christian union, find it and go along. You will encourage them and they will encourage you. You move to a new town, find the other Christians, by which I mean get along to a good local church where they're going to teach the Bible. And, uh, uh, and for Paul here, wasn't it encouraging God's provision? You've got a couple here who uh, have hit pretty hard times, really. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, he becomes friends with them. That's great. Then, look at verse 5. Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia. Now, um, let's join some dots here. What he doesn't say, but we almost certainly happened, is this. That Silas and Timothy brought a financial gift from Philippi. You can look at it, taking notes, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 14 onwards. Uh, and they brought some money. Um, well, something must have happened because Paul was having to work doing his tents and then he could just preach in the synagogue on Sundays. That's what it says, isn't it? Every Sabbath, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. How did he manage to do that if he didn't have any money? It's most likely they actually brought a shed load of money to release him so he could get on with the job full time through the generosity of the church at Philippi. Now that's good news and that's encouraging, isn't it? To be able to be involved with that. And you know, your giving to this church enables people like Stephen here to be released full time for Christian ministry. People down the years have generously given so that I can be uh, engaged full time in in doing this kind of stuff. And you know, tonight we've heard about how we can help the folks in Yemen and how we can help the gospel get out to people in Yemen and how we can can help with uh, with the humanitarian crisis that's there as well. What an encouragement to be able to give, to help change things across the world. And all you have to do is write a check if you still have them, uh, or give some cash or make a transfer or whatever it is. I think it's been really encouraging in recent months uh, at uh, some increasing in giving. Do you want to join in with that? Really encouraging. We can, and, and how it can affect so much stuff. And when Silas and Timothy arrived, almost certainly with this financial gift, Paul was able to devote himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. You can do the same here. As Tesco's would say, every little helps. Do they still say that? Well, they used to. And uh, get into the habit of giving now. So if you're in KO, for instance, or if you're a poor, impoverished student, you can still give. I got into the habit of giving regularly when I was a student. I became a Christian when I was 18. As a student, I got into the habit of regular giving. I wasn't able to give much, but I gave something. So you could start now, giving a proportion of your income. We can all do that. Oh, and one other thing. Ministry is done together, 
And we need one another. And we need to encourage one another. Just as Paul had his, his Aquila and Priscilla, just as he had Silas and Timothy, and that's a team, isn't it? And what a great team that is. We're not designed to work on our own. Now, we think of the Apostle Paul, but actually so often he was there, he was gathering people around, he was deliberately sharing his life with and working with people. We need teams so leadership should always be shared. You know, in your small group, in Explorers, in Tuesday group, in Tiddlywinks, in everything, leadership should always be shared. And we ought to encourage one another to do that. So we're working with a team of people. One of the biggest encouragements I have here, day by day, is a team of people called the staff. They're wonderful. And a huge encouragement to work with. Lots of fun, lots of laughter. A great team to work with. And I thank God for each and every one of them. So we've got uh, the encouragement of Paul, of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy. And then there's another one I want to link in here as well. And it's just simply the Lord. And uh, have a look at verses 8 to 11 here. And and this happens in two ways. Uh, First, by the fruits. The Lord encourages him by... Uh, by Paul actually seeing some fruit of his ministry, and then second, by this vision that he had. So uh, we have a look in, I mean, look at verse 8. Crisp. So what, what happens? Paul, he says, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go to the, uh, to the Jews anymore. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So he goes next door to the Gentiles. And who's the, person, the first person to become a Christian? The boss of the synagogue, a Jew. And his entire family. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Isn't that encouraging? And Paul saw that. He had been really encouraged by that, wouldn't he? And then one night, encouragement number two, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the words of God. Keep going, Paul. Go on preaching is the most likely translation of what the Lord says to Paul here. Don't stop. Don't be put off. I'm with you. It's going to be all right. I've got lots of people here who are going to become Christians. Now, how do you wisely apply that? I mean, should we just simply expect that the Lord will, will give us particular visions to stay put, be doing something or whatever it happens to be? Well, why not? He might decide to speak and encourage us in that way. But also we need to remember that now the way that God has promised to speak to us, promised, is through God's word. Of course he can speak in other ways, but we've got to ask the question, in what ways has God promised to speak to us? And he's promised to speak to us through his words. And so as we read his words, and as we spend time with Christian people in that environment, and as we hear his word preached and applied to our lives, we know that God has promised to speak to us. You know the reason why we're um, uh, praying every day for an hour between now and Christmas? It's because... uh, God spoke to me. I was uh, in a meeting with other Christian leaders. Anna was there as well. 
And it was in that meeting where I had a, uh, as the, the Bible had been explained to us and so on, and uh, as that was happening, um, I felt very, very strongly that he, uh, the Lord was just saying to me, Phil, I want you to pray for an hour every day between now and Christmas, for Christmas. And I thought, well, fine. Why don't I get my church to do it as well? And some of you were along, so we prayed together. And I'll be there at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Anyone want to come? And uh, every day, Monday through... I'm, actually, I'm not going to come on my day off, okay? But, uh, but I'll, be, I'll be preaching. Uh, I'll be praying uh, every day to now and Christmas. Do come. Do come. It's always encouraging to do stuff together. So, uh, uh, so we would want God to speak to us and we expect God to speak to us and in those situations where the Bible is being uh, explained and applied to our lives. Effective evangelism needs people who encourage us. So how could you be an encourager of other people? How could you encourage someone this evening? What could you say? What could you do to help to encourage someone else here tonight? Just one thing, maybe before you go to bed tonight. Second thing, effective evangelism needs people to encourage us. And the second thing is it needs uh, dogged determination. Never give up. It needs dogged or perseverance is what it says. Yes, actually, that's what's in my notes. Dogged persistence. Um, a guy called Leighton Ford once said this. Uh, it's been estimated on average it takes a thousand Christians a year to bring one person to Christ. On average, it takes a thousand Christians a year to bring one person to Christ. He then said, that's not good enough. I don't think it is, is it? It's not very good. And partly it's not good enough because we're not persistent. Um, it was uh, John Wesley, okay, a little while ago, but he was speaking to his co-worker and he said, you have nothing to do but save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times and to take care of this or that society, but to save as many souls as you can, to bring as many sinners as you can, as you possibly can to repentance, and with all your power to build them up in that holiness without which they cannot see the Lord. And here, in Acts chapter 18, Paul is incredibly persistent. Some might, I mean, some might say, look at verse 6, he wasn't persistent, he gave up with the, uh, uh, seeking to reach the Jews. But actually, he just went next door. He wasn't giving up, he was refocusing. And he went next door, which was uh, um, slightly um, uh, undiplomatic, you might think. But he goes to the Gentiles, look at the end of verse 6. And then who's the first convert, as we mentioned, the synagogue ruler, the synagogue leader, Christmas, and his household. But he wasn't the only one. Look at the encouragement there at the end of verse 8. Keep on going. So preaching the gospel for Paul, it hadn't been that fruitful in Athens. Just a few. And he comes to Corinth, and it's a distinctly dodgy place. He could well have thought, oh dear, this is going to be tough, isn't it? And he could have just kind of withered on the vine. But he kept on going. And actually when he started... It wasn't great either, was it, in the beginning of the chapter there? Every Sabbath, he reasoned verse 4 in the synagogue, trying to persuade uh, Jews and Greeks. And then um, uh, what happened in verse 6? The Jews there opposed Paul and became abusive. 
So that's difficult, isn't it? That situation is, he had a tough time in Athens. He comes to Corinth, it's a tough place, and he's having another tough time. Could have given up. Could have given up. But he persists. It was, uh, it was Churchill. Churchill, who said, um, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. Said in anything great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. And it was Robert the Bruce. You know the story about Robert the Bruce. I looked this one up just to be sure. Um, he was King of Scots in 1306. And uh, uh, he'd been defeated by the English and he escaped. And he made his hideout in a cave uh, for three months. And he thought of leaving his country never to return. But then one day in this cave he watched a spider spinning her web in the cave's entrance. And the spider fell time after time after time. Finally, succeeded in building the web. So Bruce decided that he would try again. And he told his men, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, and try again. And he did. And he defeated the English, most notably at Bannockburn, despite that was in 1314, despite being outnumbered 10 to 1. Persist. Never give up. Never give in. Uh, dogged persistence. Christmas time's coming. What wonderful opportunities. Keep on going. You know, don't think, well, I'll just give out one invitation to someone and maybe they'll come and maybe they won't. No. What about 20 or 30 invitations? Because some people are going to come. That's what we need to be encouraging one another to do. Keep on inviting. Keep on praying. 7 o'clock every morning, 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. Like Derek Edwards, whose Thanksgiving service we had um, just... Um, and was Derek? So the week before last now, isn't it? And uh, celebrating, uh, uh, we were, Derek's life because he always was looking to share his faith. And he persisted. Derek persisted all the way to heaven. Wonderful guy. Effective evangelism. It needs people who encourage us. It needs dogged persistence. And the third thing is it needs power of the gospel the power of the gospel now that is not in doubt of course uh, the gospel is power everywhere the gospel brings people from death to life to do that has to be incredibly powerful because uh, we human beings have got an incredible problem and as we read the book of acts you're going to see the gospel working in all sorts of places more, some more fruitful than others the gospel works it is the power of God for salvation the first recorded convert in Corinth uh, is a Jewish synagogue leader that's a powerful position and the same message in all sorts of different places and all sorts of different situations that Jesus died for rebellious people to bring us to God. So we don't need to rethink the gospel. We don't need to recast the gospel. We don't need to reimagine the gospel. We don't need to re-anything the gospel. 
for any different kind of situations. The gospel is the gospel. It is powerful just as it is that Jesus Christ died for sinful people to bring us to God as forgiven and bought back sinners so that we may live with him for all eternity. And the gospel is the gospel. And it has the power to save absolutely anyone. No one's beyond hope. So no one is beyond the gospel. Uh, Apparently once when Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching at Oxford in the university mission, it's way back in 1941, and he preached to a congregation full of students and and, uh, some graduates and so on, and he said, uh, I preached them as I would have preached anywhere else. And then at question time afterwards, one of the rather arrogant Oxford undergraduates, plenty of those, uh, said, uh, uh, criticized the sermon and said, uh, it could equally well have been delivered to a congregation of farm laborers or anyone else, in a rather kind of stuck up kind of way. And Lloyd-Jones responded, I regard undergraduates, indeed graduates of Oxford University, as being just common human clay and the miserable sinners like anybody else. And uh, held the view that their needs were precisely the same uh, as that of the agricultural laborer or anyone else. Uh, and, uh, and so I preached, as I had done, quite deliberately. There is no greater fallacy, he wrote later on, than to think that you need a gospel for special types of people. So the gospel is the gospel for everyone, for anyone. For a synagogue leader called Crispus, he wasn't beyond the gospel. So, for instance, your, uh, uh, your dad, who will come to the carols by candlelight, but not to any, anything else, not beyond the gospel. Your daughter's boyfriend, not beyond the gospel. The difficult and awkward boss at work, not beyond the gospel. Your neighbor you find so difficult to talk to and strike up conversations with, not beyond the gospel. No one is beyond the gospel because it is simply powerful. It is the power. The gospel is extraordinarily powerful and can bring anyone from death to life and life for all eternity. So this evening, some things we've seen in Corinth. Uh, We've seen there, uh, in order for evangelism to be effective, uh, people, we need people to encourage us. Thank God that he provides them for Paul. And thank God for the people who've encouraged you to keep going. And we can encourage one another. And we need dogged persistence just to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Keep on going in our prayers, keep on going in our invitations and so on. Keep on going and looking for opportunities. And we have and we rejoice in the power of the gospel. That is unchanging. And the gospel is power to save anyone. Absolutely anyone. Absolutely anyone this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for some of these uh, lessons we've seen from uh, Paul's arrival in Corinth. Lord, thank you that you sent him people to help and to encourage him. Please, Lord, may we do that for our Christian friends and brothers and sisters. And remember to thank you for those who have helped and encouraged us. Thank you, Lord, for the dogged persistence of Paul keeping on going and for the fruit that you encouraged him with and from this vision, too, of the Lord Jesus to keep on going, Paul. Just keep on going. And, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the simple power of the gospel, powerful enough 
to see the conversion and to bring to new life absolutely anyone. Please, Lord, grow our confidence for your glory. Amen.